1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Welcome to Tales to Terrify.
3: Good evening. Come in. Close the door. Welcome back to the nook for more tales to terrify. That's why you're here, right? So sit. Uh, Pull the lap robe over you. It's chilly in here tonight. There. Sheepskin. Warm. hmm? Some of you out there, I I know, you... Don't believe the place exists. You think it's a, a fabrication, a set of mind carpentry for mood, atmosphere to match the tone of our tales. But it's real. I've told you it's a, a little room off the main paths of the flat. It is. It's wall to wall books and shadows on three sides and a wall of paintings and sketches on the fourth. They hover over the bed. The bed's just a large pallet with mattresses and lots of cushions and covers. Uh, That's a genuine Victorian easy chair next to it, at the foot. It's real, but it's from the set of a television show I wrote for an associate produced way, way back in the old century. The bed is a thing I bought when I got thrown out of my... Well, (laughs) that's... that's for another evening. Not that I'm avoiding intimacy with you. It's not appropriate for tonight's tales and talk, that's all. Speaking of which, tonight we'll have some short fiction, a bit of poetry. We'll look at some severed heads with Mike Allen... And we'll hear a lovely little tale by Bram Stoker Award winner John Everson. Oh, listen, speaking of the Stokers, the list went out of the nominees after last week's gather at, uh, no, no, I'm not going to read it. There are 11 categories, five nominees in each, and you can find it in the forum section for last week's show. Just stop up, take a look. And, oh, congratulations to everyone on the list. I've been there twice, and each time it was a thrill. One time it was a total surprise. I hadn't been paying attention, as is my wont, but seeing my name shoved against Stephen Kings, Joyce Carol Oates, Mort Castle, Steve and Melanie Thames, well, well, it scared me, to be honest. Kind of now he belongs to the ages kind of thing. You mean I'll be forever archived as having written God screamed and screamed, then I ate him? That kind of terror. Well, I'm not there this year. Sometime again. Sometime. Maybe. The short fiction for the evening is by P.D. Kasich. Telling no secrets, I believe, when I say the P stands for Patricia, the D for Diana. There's a joy and an an in there, too. Wonderful name for a romance writer, she says. That's why I write as P.D. Kasich. Well, her friends know her as Trish. One reason I wanted you to know that the nook and its furnishings are real is that Trish is among a select group of writer friends who have lain their weird and weary heads upon these cushions in years past. Uh, Trish was here for a world horror con and stayed to visit the city. In particular, she wanted to see the Lions of Tsavo at the Field Museum. And if you don't know of these critters, you should. Look them up, or watch the movie The Ghost in the Darkness. Anyway, here's P.D. Kasich's Payback.
1: Everyone thought she was crazy. She knew that. Knew also about the snickers and comments, the head shakes and sly looks, and the tisk tisk tisks they made behind her back. And accepted it. Well, maybe accepted was too strong a word, especially since they were all wrong. But she understood it. After all, you tell people, even people who are supposed to be friends, that your house is haunted, and they suddenly look at you like you have two heads or are in the process of trying to consume a small child. She knew. She accepted. And she was pissed. Her friends... Of course, most people would have considered them long-distant friends now, the one-time neighbors who'd given up the congested, smog-coated urban sprawl for the strip malls and kim green lawns of suburbia. But she still thought of them as friends, comments about her sanity notwithstanding, and still called them and met them for shopping or dinners or lunches or casual whatevers, but only if she went to them. Never the other way around. No one came to her house. It was just too dangerous. If someone knows a place is dangerous, they don't invite their friends. Ever. And her friends accepted that. Sort of. Others didn't. It was as simple as that. But of course, that never stopped either group from tisking and tasking and talking and thinking she was nuts. The people who didn't know her and had never been one kind of friend or another, like her neighbors, just thought she was the mean old woman who lived alone in the big, ugly old house all by herself, and screamed at their kids to keep off her lawn, or threatened to call the police on them if they parked anywhere near her curb, and kept her lights off on Halloween, never put up Christmas decorations, and kept a rusty padlock on the front gate whenever she was away. They didn't know... I would never find out, from her at least, that she was only doing that to keep them safe. From the ghosts, her constant and, as it turned out, most loyal companions. Husbands could become exes. Children could run halfway across the country. Friends could talk about you behind your back. The recession could force you to keep and maintain a house that, though haunted, was at least paid for, and you could grow old and bitter and lose every hope and dream. But you'd never lose a ghost. Once they showed themselves to you, and you alone, as it turned out, they'd never leave you alone. Loyalty everlasting. And they were all there, The dark, featureless shape with glowing, dead white eyes that had caused more than one near tumble down the stairs when it would suddenly materialize and reach out for her. The dog thing that snuffled and growled along the bottom edge of her bedroom door when she was trying to fall asleep. The ones that touched. The ones that whispered. The ones that moaned, staring at her. And she stared right back at them, The wind rattled the door against its frame as she crossed the front hall. It was dark, but there was no need for lights. Besides knowing where they were, huddled in mass in one corner of the living room, she knew every inch of every room of the house she'd had to share with them for the past 58 years. Well, she asked through the darkness, what are you waiting for? None of you were what I'd ever call shy. Moan, groan, growl. Do something. The indistinct dog shape broke away from the others and shrank low to the carpet before slinking toward the deeper shadows beneath an end table. The rest didn't move until she cleared her throat. And then there seemed to be a slight shiver that ran through the collective length. It was a start. I said, do something now. For a moment, there was nothing. Then, save one, they all stepped back and left the indistinct shape with the dead eye standing in center. Did you think I wouldn't come back? There was the beginning of a sound, the lifting of what might have once been a hand. Well, uh, we thought, uh, shut up! It stepped back so quickly it passed through two other ghosts and the living room wall, Don't you dare say one more word to me, any of you. It's my turn now. You've put me through 58 years of hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Did you think that being a ghost gave you the right to ruin my life and make everyone think I was a lunatic? Well, did you? Silence. They were learning. I could have been happy here, she reminded them. I could have had a wonderful life if it hadn't been for you. You made my life miserable, so now I think I'm entitled to return the favor, don't you think? This is my house, and I'm taking it back. Balling her hands into fists, she lifted her chin and let go with an undulating shriek that would have sent any living creature within a nine-block radius stampeding for the hill. And which, surprisingly, had the same effect on the dead. They didn't scatter so much as explode from the room in an ectoplasmic free-for-all of rattling chains, trailing shrouds, the pounding of phantom footfalls, and panicked gibbering. It was funnier than hell, but she didn't laugh. She had time enough to do that later, more than enough time. Now, the ivy lines trailing behind her like broken tethers, she glided up the staircase without touching it and wished once again, that she'd had the presence of mind to ask the nurses to change her into something a bit more becoming before she coded. A hospital gown, even one that closed in the back, was just so uninspiring for a ghost. Not that it seemed to matter to her co-haunts. Her presence had scared them sheetless. The one thing the ghosts hadn't counted on was her death, or the fact that she'd come back. For good. It was payback time. The End For Shirley Joy Munn, November 22, 1925, to March 1, 2010
3: Thank you, Trish. Trish is a sensitive. She feels ghosts. She walks into her room and knows just where they're gathering. Years ago, I took her to the Red Lion Pub here in Chicago for a meeting of the old Twilight Tales author's reading series. The Lion is one of the most haunted places in the city. I'll I'll tell you more about that later. But Trish picked the very spot or at least one of the spots. She stopped in the stairwell, looked up, said, Here, there it is, and pointed to a large plaque on the wall that had head of a lion. It was confirmed by the owner. There's where it, or one of them, was. Confound it! then, she did the same thing here. When she came to stay overnight, she said, There's one here. He's. And there he was. He's here. He's with me now. In the nook. She said it's a very friendly one. And nothing. nothing to worry about. Anyway, Trish has won more Stokers and other awards than God should allow. Now, however, she's changed direction in her life. She's in theater now, a playwright. Her play The Last Order just ended its first run and is being considered for a regional competition. Good luck with that. Trish and I seem to have traded careers. I used to be in theater. Didn't I tell you? Yeah, I I wrote a bit, but mostly I directed. Now, here I am in horror, and she... Well, as I said, I wish her all the best. Trish blogs infrequently at... That's and that's spelled P-D-C-A-C-E-K. And thank you, Amy H. Sturgis, Dr. Amy H. Sturgis, for reading that. Amy is an author, editor, scholar, educator, speaker, and podcaster with specialties in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and Native American studies. She lives with her husband, Dr. Larry M. Hall, and their best friend, Virginia, the Boston Terrier in the foothills of North Carolina. And just last week, Amy conducted a podcast symposium on the Starship Sofa on the subject of Sherlock Holmes and science fiction. Poetry. This week, we'll hear another piece by Bruce Boston. This week, it's Skulking in bedroom shadows. Attenuated images come back in the short hours of night, drifting in and out of sleep, fragments of conversation torn from a transformed past, forsaken visions revisited. In cafes of decanted history, the clientele and fair change by the minute, In the switchblade turns of yesterday's streets, the light flickers with broken images from a projector cranked by hand. The wave of the present intrudes on the past like a master thief, stealing bits and pieces of time and remembrance from a limited cache The wave of the past invades the present like a cat burglar clawing up the trellis, clinging to vines, leaping to a window, creeping across the floor, pouring through drawers in the depths of dreams, skulking in bedroom shadows just where you are sure to find. Thanks again for that, Bruce. Skulking in Bedrooms was one of the poems in Bruce's collection Surrealities from Dark Regions Press. The book is one of the contenders for the 2011 Bram Stoker Award for Poetry Collection. All the best, Bruce. Beginning in Episode 3 of Tales to Terrify, Mythic Delirium's Mike Allen took us on a tour of the abattoir. Tonight, that tour down Meat Alley will include a few severed heads. Mike?
2: Hello again, Tales to Terrify listeners. I'm Mike Allen, and this is the second installment of my column, Tour of the Abattoir. I want to start with a severed head. H.P. Lovecraft's head, to be precise. Back in December, author Nnedi Okorafor, the most recent winner of the World Fantasy Award, caused a bit of a stir on her blog over Lovecraft's head. You see, in case you didn't know, the statuette that's given out at the World Fantasy Awards is a caricature of Lovecraft created by macabre artist Gahan Wilson. Nnedi Okorafor, whose parents emigrated to the United States from Nigeria, is the first black author to win the award for her novel Who Fears Death, which reviewers describe as a grim, grand story set in a post-apocalyptic Africa where magic is real. In a December blog entry titled Lovecraft's Racism and the World Fantasy Award Statuette, Akorafor describes how a friend of hers spotted the award and proceeded to show her a poem Lovecraft wrote in 1912, in which he clearly put forth a view that he thought people of African descent were subhuman. He makes liberal use of the N-word, which I assume Tony and Larry would prefer I not use in this column, and thus I cannot repeat the poem's title. She proceeds to question, quite reasonably, whether it's appropriate to continue using Lovecraft's image for the award, as she now has to put up with having a statue of a racist in her house, representing one of her highest honors as a writer. A number of opinions were offered, and though my column comes a couple months after the debate's most intense moments, I feel strongly enough to share my thoughts here. First, I give you a story from my profession, the one that actually supports me, that is. In my day job, I work as a newspaper reporter, The Virginia Press Association, for 50 years, gave out an award called the W.S. Copeland Award for Journalistic Integrity and Community Service. It was the highest honor a newspaper in this state could win. Then in 2000, the Richmond Times-Dispatch reported that Mr. Copeland had used his position as a newspaper editor to virulently oppose racial equality. Within a week, the V.P.A. changed the name of their award. I'm curious to see if the science fiction and fantasy community will be so responsive. I am a fan of Lovecraft's fiction and of the monsters he created, but I'll confess, when I read L. Sprague de Camp's biography of the man as a teenager, I was disappointed to learn about how flawed a human being he proved to be, with racism and anti-Semitism the most glaring of his unpleasantries— But that specifically isn't why I believe the award should be changed. I say a bust of Lovecraft has never made sense as a representation of the World Fantasy Award. I remember being surprised when I first learned that was what the award looked like. There's no question Lovecraft's influence on genre writing is immense. But the scope of fantasy is so much larger than the type of story that he specialized in and the settings he specialized in, that an award bearing his name or face is just not an adequate representation of the field, not remotely so. It might make some sense as a horror award, though you know the Horror Writers Association's Bram Stoker Award is a sculpture of a haunted house, not a specific person. Surely a better design can be found, and I hope the folks in charge of the World Fantasy Convention will take the time to seek one out. Now, then, I sure do seem to end up talking about Lovecraft a lot. He's hard to avoid when you're talking about horror, but he's not the only important author from our past whose influence can be felt in the present. Just this week, I finished reading a collection of short stories by up-and-coming American horror writer John Langan. Full disclosure, I know John, having hung out with him a little at conventions here and there. His first collection, Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, came out in 2008, and though he's written many stories since then, they've not yet been collected in book form. John's stories in Mr. Gaunt call to mind, my mind at least, a British master of horror who was an older contemporary of Lovecraft, Montague Rhodes James, more commonly known as M. R. James. If you haven't encountered the tales of M. R. James before, you're in for a treat. They're usually referred to as ghost stories, but they're really monster stories. James invented a whole new kind of, quote, ghost, unquote, that nowadays we'd be more prone to call a demon. They're almost always a creature somehow released from an ancient magical prison, or summoned by meddling with old religious artifacts, or unleashed by a vengeful sorcerer. It may be worth noting that James often affiliates supernatural horror with the Catholic Church, or at least its relics and carvings. Old Monty's creatures are ugly things, too, often incorporating spider-like, insect-like, or amphibious qualities that in hindsight seem like precursors for our modern ideas of what monsters are. Also, rather than plunging you right into the action the way modern tales do— they tend to unfold slowly, set up by a narrator who's going to share the story with you. And either it's something that happened to him long ago, something he researched, or even something he heard about or read about from some other source. There's a reason why a lot of classic horror tales employ this device. Setting a story up by saying, well, it didn't happen to me, but this is what I heard gives the mind permission to suspend disbelief in a way that doesn't necessarily happen when you start off by saying, This happened to me, and this is what I did. I have a copy of the collected ghost stories of M. R. James that I bought during a trip to England in 2004, and if you can nab that, you should, though if you don't mind reading on a screen, James's stories are all in the public domain and available on Wikisource. The BBC has also adapted several of his tales over the years as part of its occasional Ghost Story for Christmas specials, a number of which you can find on YouTube. In some, Christopher Lee portrays M.R. James as he spins his tales to a gaggle of breathless Cambridge students. These might be the best possible way to experience them, come to think of it. So why in this review of John Langan's collection have I gone on this long tangent about M.R. James? Well, like James, Langan is an academic, and it shows in his approaches to storytelling. But even more important, Langan adapts old-school methods in the manner he chooses to tell a horror tale, most emphatically in his collection's first two stories, On Skua Island and the title tale, Mr. Gaunt. A side note... Langan admits to being a fan of the work of another 19th-century James, Henry James, and certainly that influence is evident here, too, but it's M. R. James that I believe Langan to be more closely aligned with, as his monsters, whatever their metaphorical significance, are meant to be taken literally. I should also note that this review is bound to contain some spoilers. You have been warned. Onskua Island starts with a group of acquaintances gathered at a home by the sea, swapping ghost stories. A man at this gathering begins to relay the tale that turns out to be the meat of the novelette, recounting an excursion to an island off the Scottish coast, where the assembled team of soldiers and scientists unearth a mummified woman, tortured horribly before she died, who was used as a kind of scapegoat sacrifice, by the people who lived there in ancient times. You might guess that the mummy isn't going to take things lying down for very long, and that the men on the island aren't prepared for what's in store for them. To be honest, I didn't find this tale very frightening, in part because events unfold more like B-movie action sequences than the hinted-at horrors of a typical Jamesian tale. And yet... Once the tale is told and we come back to the present day, with our narrator reflecting on the implications of what he's heard, the story manages to sound a nicely disquieting final note. The title story, to my mind, more effectively evokes that disquieting mood. We start with a young man named Henry, who is sorting through the possessions of his recently deceased father he comes across a tape his father recorded that's addressed to him. Similarly to Onskua Island, the contents of the recording turn out to be the main part of the novella. Henry learns about a cousin, Peter, who died long ago. In fact, Peter endured an incredibly horrible, painful death that lasted for days at the hands of a man named Mr. Gaunt who serves as butler to Peter's father, George, who is Henry's uncle. The skeletal Mr. Gaunt, as you might guess, isn't quite human, and the reasons he serves George are not exactly savory. Uncle George has knowledge of the dark arts that goes well beyond dabbling, which, along with his evil companion, puts us firmly in M. R. James' territory. Although there's an element of B-movie silliness here as well in how the attack on Peter goes down, what ultimately happens to the poor boy is excruciating and disturbing, and yet the real horror comes from Uncle George's indifference to the fate his son suffers. George is in many ways a more frightening monster than his servant. You see, Gaunt murdered Peter to get revenge on Uncle George for enslaving him. But the revenge fails because George is such a sociopath that his son's death costs him no emotional toll at all. Dear old Dad made the tape in order to warn Henry to stay away from Uncle George. But after the tape is done playing, we learn Henry plans to have dinner with his uncle, who has suddenly contacted him after many years that very night. And Uncle George's, quote, butler, unquote, will be joining them. This story stuck with me after it was over, its total accumulation of horrors, large and small, wonderfully unsettling. The other three stories in the collection retain some of that scholarly tone, though they deviate a bit more from the techniques of the old masters. Tutorial struck me as a trifle a satirical metaphor for what can happen to a writer in an academic creative writing program that transforms going to a writing tutor into something akin to a torture porn scenario. I might have found this hilarious back when I was in grad school, but present-day me found it a bit too predictable and heavy-handed. It's jokes too obvious. I've mentioned there's a B-movie influence at work in these stories, which gets put to its best use in the fourth tale in the book, which comes with the mouthful of a title, Episode 7, Last Stand Against the Pack in the Kingdom of the Purple Flowers. This is a weird, elegantly written post-apocalyptic yarn in which a pregnant woman and her comic book collecting geek friend who is changed into a grim, bomb-building, gun-wielding survivalist fend off a group of werewolf-like creatures who have been pursuing them through a city where a mysterious plague destroyed the population. A number of stranger things have happened even beyond that, but there's no explanation given for what has destroyed the world. The man and the woman don't know. And yet, in terms of what's revealed about the characters and how events play out, it's a quite satisfying story especially in what the woman comes to understand about her companion, and a meta-commentary of sorts that's worked in about the nature of comic book vigilantes. The final novella, La Alquan, or The Singularity, stretches out a short story's worth of happenings into something much longer by going into great detail about the personal life of a failed artist and academic Said artist finds a strange artifact, apparently left in the trash outside his apartment complex, a creepy sculpture that appears to be incomplete. He becomes obsessed with it, and if you've been around the block at all when it comes to horror, then you probably don't need anyone to tell you that completing the sculpture will cause something to happen that's hazardous to the artist's health. It takes a while to get there, though. And when it finally does happen, some of that B-movie silliness creeps back in, making the artist's fate not as shudder-inducing as maybe it ought to be. But once again, Langdon manages to end the thing on a nicely disquieting note. Langdon has written other stories since these came out. One, How the Day Runs Down, is one of the best zombie stories to be written in the past ten years. An amazing mashup of Dawn of the Dead with Thornton Wilder's play Our Town, complete with a stage manager who comments on the horrific events as they unfold. He's also received a lot of praise for a novelette unread by me, Technicolor, that uses the vehicle of an academic lecture to take a new look at Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death. So Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters is not a knockout debut, like Laird Barron's first collection, The Imigo Sequence and Other Stories. There's nothing in Mr. Gaunt that matches the power of Baron's best, such as Bulldozer or Procession of the Black Sloth, but it's a good introduction to an eloquent writer who shows a lot of promise, and who isn't working in the Lovecraftian tradition. My goal here for the moment is to keep telling you about cool stuff you might not be familiar with, and so my next review will be of Cheshire Burke's debut collection, Let's Play White, published last year by Apex Publications. But first, I'm going to try something a little different. Last column, you heard me talk about watching The Human Centipede at a friend's house. Well, that friend, Shalon Hurlbert, knows more about obscure horror movies than anyone I have ever met. And so he and I have watched a film of his choosing, Marabito, a quirky J-horror flick from the creator of the Juwan the Grudge series of films. And next column, he and I together... We'll share our thoughts about it. I'd love to hear from you in the meantime, via email or in the episode comments, about any book, movie, or other matter you'd like me to look into, or any opinion you might have about what I've already talked about. And until then, stay
3: scared. Thanks, Mike. Descent into Light is Mike Allen's homepage. Click on the link below. You know, horror, horror is a, a small community, uh, a little town spread all over the world. A lot of people know each other, rub shoulders at various gatherings, then go forth to rub more shoulders with more writers, editors. Cross pollinates the forum, if you catch the image. Our main story tonight is from one of my old Twilight Tales chums, and sometime I've just got to tell you all about Twilight Tales. Anyway, John Everson was one of my chums from that little gathering. John is another Stoker winner, a multiple nominee for the award in several categories. He won for his first novel, Covenant, in 2004, and was nominated in 2007 for his short story, Letting Go, We'll have that one sometime down the road, but tonight's story, tonight's story is Green Apples, Red Nails. The narrator is Simon Hildebrandt. Green Apples, Red
4: Nails by John Everson. I knew that she was a witch the moment she offered me the apple. How else could she have known what the perfect lure would be for a man like me? She must have cast a spell and looked inside my head at all those moments I've kept hidden in the darkness of shame and pain. And then she'd shown up at my porch to gloat. I had no idea who she was, or why she had chosen me, but I opened the door to let her inside anyway. She shook her head. "'You need to clean house first, before you are ready for me,' she said. Her voice was cool, but smoky with promise." Red lacquer gleamed in the fading afternoon light as her long fingernails dug faint trails across the skin of the apple. It slipped in slow motion anticipation from her grasp to fall into my waiting hand. "'Look inside. The answers are there,' she said with an ever-so-slight raise of her brow, and then she turned and walked away, down the uneven sidewalk path and up the hill that led from our slum of a subdivision and into the bramble woods that bordered the entry to town.' I watched the pendulous sway of her rear as she slowly stepped from concrete square to square, never looking back. I wondered again why she had chosen me, and if she came from that house that no. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
4: nobody in town would ever visit without the aid of a big money bet and a bottle of liquor for courage. The house in the woods. The house of the lost, they called it, during late night whispering conversation. I closed the heavy door to my run down ranch, and tossed the apple a foot in the air, catching it easily before throwing it higher, and then higher again. When it nearly touched the ceiling, I almost fumbled it on the way down, so I stopped and set it down on the kitchen counter, next to a handful of other green apples that I'd just bought from the store that afternoon. Then I looked around my little hovel and wondered what was so desperately in need of cleaning before she would deign to step into my home. The stained-brown couch was empty but for an afghan on its back cushions that my late grandmother had knitted me. The old thrift store coffee table in front of it had a stack of magazines and an empty Coke can on it, and the TV remote. The carpet was worn but uncluttered, and the kitchen counters were empty but for a stack of junk mail, my coffee maker, and the coffee and sugar canisters. I didn't keep much of a house, but I did keep it neat. I stared at the green apple there in the middle of the counter. How had she known? What did she want? A tear wiggled loose from the corner of my eye and slid down my face as I remembered so many things best left forgotten. The answer is inside, she'd said. I thought about that for a moment and shivered at the thought of biting into the apple. I thought of the fairy tales and a poison apple. Instead of eating it, I took a heavy cleaver from the utensil drawer and held it up for a moment above the stem of the unripe fruit. Then I brought the knife down cleanly, easily dividing the apple in half. It fell in two pieces, and I stared at the centre, where the seeds should have been. The apple was hollow at its core. A small worm lifted its head from the rotten brown pit in one half of the apple, and then put its head back down, content to continue eating the apple's heart out. The unripened fruit was already rotten. What was she trying to say? The hurting began early. It wasn't dramatic or extreme. You hear stories about these schizophrenics and street bums and mass murderers and how their childhoods were so cliche, over the top bad. You know what I mean. Oh, well, his mama slept with every man in town while her son played Tonka trucks next to the couch as she gave head to the guy who would later sodomize the poor kid repeatedly once his mom had passed out from a steady, day-long series of complex cocktails of sperm chased with vodka. Yeah, it's no wonder he turned to collecting severed heads when he grew up. Well, my mother wasn't a junkie whore, and I didn't live in a rat-infested tenement. I have no horror story to tell about why I ended up living a lonely life in a forgotten town. I can't even talk about a Bonnie and Clyde robbery spree or a batshit crazy murder trail. I was a nobody, am nobody. But I still felt the hurting, regardless. Maybe it wasn't dramatic enough to make me famous, but it hurt still. And most people would probably hear the story and laugh and say, well, get over it. If it were only that easy. You just never know what thing is going to stay with you for life. My parents and I lived in a typical suburban house with the mud of a dog and a chain link fence and meatloaf on Wednesday nights. Memorably unmemorable. But I can remember the first time I really hurt inside. The kind of hurting that stays with you for life and creeps out in the night during those moments when you're truly alone. The hurting didn't come from a beating from dad or a lecture from mum. My parents never hurt me. Hell, sometimes I wonder if they even noticed I was there. And maybe that was hurt enough, I don't know. They had their own lives to sort through, and I probably didn't even ever tell them about the girl with the green apples. I was twelve or thirteen, and really getting interested in girls, when Alyssa Romano, an eighth grader who looked more like a high school senior to me, promised me a peek beneath her blouse. She told me to meet her in the picnic clearing at Boosie Woods, which I did. Boosie Woods was one of those dark, quiet places where furtive people meet in shadows to do shadowy things before parting without a word. "'so I was excited and scared to go there. "'But how could I resist Alyssa, "'with those long wavy locks "'and eyes that always seemed to be laughing at secret jokes? "'When I arrived, she was holding two green apples. "'She grinned when she saw me "'and slipped them inside the bra beneath her yellow T-shirt. "'Want a bite?' she asked, "'and when I nodded, albeit hesitantly, she smiled. "'I need to see what I'm getting into,' she said. "'Take off your shirt first. I argued a bit, but finally peeled it off and asked her to do the same. She shrugged and dropped the yellow tea to the ground. I could see the green of the apples pushing out of her white bra, the soft flesh of her smooshed breast trying to escape from the opposite edge. Now your pants, she said. I hadn't expected things to go this far, but now I was excited and horny and it didn't take much before I was standing naked in front of her. "Hm," she said, sizing me up and down with an eye that had more of woman than girl in it. She walked around behind me as she talked. You might be a little green yet, I think. Your pants? I asked, a little breathless and cold, but still warm with a queasiness of excitement in my groin. You still want a bite? she asked, leaning against my naked back from behind. I nodded and felt her hands brush against my skin. Hold out your hands, she said, and when I did, they were suddenly filled with something cool and hard and round. The apples. Eat up, she laughed, and grabbed her shirt from the ground. At that moment, the wood suddenly released a mob of taunting, hooting, laughing girls from my school. As Alyssa put distance between us, a hail of apples suddenly rained down on me from the hands of almost a dozen creatures whose wickedness was masked in braids and barrettes. One of them rushed close enough to slap me in the arse as I wheeled about, scrambling to find my clothes and still, unconsciously, clenching the hard, bitter skins of the green apples that Alyssa had left me when I got home later that afternoon, eyes still red with the residue of tears, I found that I still clenched one green apple. When I bit into the skin, the tart juice only served to make my eyes tear up again, and I threw it on the ground in my backyard. It was much like me, unripe and unready, and bitter. Shaking away the memory thirty-five years gone, I threw the rotten apple in the garbage and put on my shoes to take a walk. Not too surprisingly, my feet led me down the same path I'd watched the woman leave my house. When I came to the path leading into the woods, I hesitated, but not for long. I wanted to know. Did someone live still in the house of the lost? When I was a kid, we used to dare each other to run into the woods on Halloween and egg the old gray frame shack that hid in the middle of the trees like a canker on otherwise healthy flesh. Only the bravest of the brave trick-or-treated here and there was a time in grade school when I had been dared to visit the House of the Lost on Halloween. I had reluctantly agreed, and dressed as a hobo, had walked into the forest after dark with a flashlight to ascend the creaking steps of the old house's porch. I had knocked on the door, and a woman had answered the door. She wore a black pointed hat, and for a second I almost ran when I saw the yellowed fangs and the horrible watered nose of a witch beneath the hat. And then she had lifted the mask to reveal a softer chin and warmer lips and green eyes. With a long-fingered hand, she had answered my trick-or-treat by offering me a taffy apple. "'Made it myself,' she said, before letting the mask slip back over her face and giving out a hideous cackle. Not knowing what to say, I backed off the porch and then ran back to the sidewalk. "'She gave me this,' I said to my cronies, who dared me to brave the dark. I raised the caramel apple in the air with a flourish and then put it to my mouth for a bite.' No, don't, Tom had yelled as I bit into the fruit, and the sour juice of a green apple coated my tongue. It might have razor blades in it, or pins. I spit the piece on the ground and threw the rest of the apple into the forest. You're right, I said, hoping that there hadn't been poison in the sour juice. I spit, and we'd left the witch behind. It had looked like a death house three decades ago, and as I approached it now, at dusk, I saw that it hadn't gotten any better with age. The green of moss obscured the black of its peeling shingles, and paint hung in strips from the eaves beneath. In the side yard to the left of the porch a broad but short tree hung heavy with green apples. So now I knew where the witch got her stock. I wonder where Alyssa had gotten hers. And all these years later I still wondered why. Some hurts never heal. Two windows on either side of the front door were dark betraying nothing of what was inside, and I smiled at myself. Fool, I thought, why would a beautiful woman live here? Whoever she was, her magic was a knowledge that she shouldn't have of me. Not true magic at all. What her purpose was, I didn't know, but as I stood there in front of the old house, as shadows fell deeper by the second, I was suddenly certain that there was no witch, and the rotten green apple had no more meaning than the green apple I had carried home from my public shame in the forest clearing so many years before. There was no magic here, only the sadness of decay. I was turning away from the porch when a light flickered on inside. I've been waiting for you for a long time, a voice said from the doorway. I turned back and faced my witch. She had the green eyes just like the witch I had seen on my Halloween trip here in high school, and from just an hour or so earlier on my porch. She couldn't have been the same woman, and yet. What do you want from me? I asked. What do you want from me?" she asked, countering my question as she used one hand to pull aside her long emerald robe. It shimmered faintly in the moonlight as it moved, and revealed the naked shadow of her breast and belly beneath it. I could see the wide cone of her nipple still soft and unaroused, but the promise of her body stirred an instant reaction in me, and that reaction made me angry. I could imagine the feel of her velvet skin slipping against mine, her lips brushing my ear and promising so much. "'and I hated her for teasing me that way. "'Just leave me alone,' I said, and suddenly ran from the forest. "'Behind me, I heard the gentle titter of a woman's scornful laugh following me. "'That night, I dreamt of Alyssa. "'She led me into the forest again, and this time she didn't offer me apples at all, "'but instead unbuttoned her white blouse and dropped her private school plaid skirt.' before kicking aside her panties and bra to stand nude and white before me. Her breasts looked smaller, untethered, than they seemed in her sweater, but my eyes were drawn to that soft black down at the crux of her thighs. She slid a hand behind my belt and made a fist around what she found there. Use it or lose it, my friend, she said. And the next thing I knew, the dark locks of her hair were tickling my naked legs, and Alyssa was using it and abusing it with wanton, heedless abandon. Something in me snapped, and I was no longer the frightened, humiliated boy that Alyssa taunted, but instead I was filled with power and raw lust. I grabbed her by the hair and hauled her from my lap to push her back against a tree. I bit her nipples like the skin of an apple, and I thrust myself inside her as the bark of the old tree scraped against her skin. She shifted, and I twisted her around to make her hug the tree, and then I used her from behind and laughed as she cried and slid down the tree trying to escape the force of my thrusts. But then she suddenly changed and stood up, taller than me and older. Her hair was still dark, but her eyes were the green of emerald, and her breasts were heavier and thick. With a hand, she reached down and grabbed my penis and twisted it until I screamed. Look inside, she said. The answers are there. And then I was standing naked in a forest, holding two green apples. I woke up, cold and shaking. What the hell was going on? The images of the dream just kept cycling through my mind, the tease of a past that never happened, juxtaposed with the modern face of the witch. Why was this stranger in my dreams suddenly? Why was she at my door? My heart pounded as I thought about the red daggers of her fingernails releasing her robe to let me see her nakedness. I remembered a time that I had gone outside to the park nearby, wearing only a robe. Perhaps she was letting me know that she had seen what I'd done but I didn't think anyone had seen. It took me a long time to get back to sleep. I'd had a girlfriend once who called testicles crotch apples. She didn't last with me long. She was uncouth and wanted to do disgusting things. But that term stuck with me for a long time. How could you sully the sweet purity of an apple by comparing it to sweaty, hairy balls? I didn't like the way she'd tried to put mine in her mouth. It felt strange, and made me nervous every second that she was going to bite down. I almost had a wife once. We got very close in college, and I wanted her to move in with me. But in the night, when she stayed in my bed, she insisted on sleeping naked, rubbing herself on me and the sheets like some rutting feline. I had to wash my linens after she stayed over every time. She wanted me to put my tongue in places that were obscene, and I don't mean in her mouth though she eventually said some things that could only have come from the gutter. I realised too late that as sweet as she looked on the outside, the apple of my eye, she was rotten at the core, just like the apple the witch brought me. I'm rambling. I'm unnerved. My life was fine until she showed up yesterday, and now everything seems unsettled. Old memories coming back. Old hurt. I need to get past this and just go to work. When I come home, I'm sure it will all be fine. No apples, no witches, no temptations for things of the flesh that are filled with foul mortality. Juices and the stench and bitter and, and sweet and... I'm rambling again. Just... never mind. When I got home, she was waiting for me. Did you taste my apple? she asked. It almost sounds like a double entendre. I shook my head. No, I chopped it up and found a worm inside. Was that supposed to be a message of some kind? Only if you know how to read it, she answered. She held out her hand and offered me another apple. This one was green on one side and brown and soft on the other. There were holes in the skin and I could feel liquid seeping out of the rotten side to trickle across my fingers. I threw the thing on the ground and wiped my fingers off on my pants. She smiled. Do you prefer your rot to be exposed on the outside? Why are you here? Because it's nearly Halloween, she said. And this year, since you haven't been able to do it yourself, I thought it was probably time to stop you. Stop me from what? She pulled another green apple out of the pocket of her robe. She held it in front of her, staring at the green mirror of its smooth skin, as if into a mirror. There's always one, isn't there? I cocked my head, wondering what she was getting at. Always one perfect young apple, waiting to be plucked. You're not making any sense. You're not asking the right questions, she said. Her lips split into a smirk, and the light flickered with humour in her eyes. She didn't blink. Why don't you come back to my place, and I can explain. I don't even know your name, I laughed. A little nervously, I might add. Beth, she said. It's my middle name, but it's what my mum and dad always called me. I don't know why they didn't use the name they gave me. In any case, does that help? A little, I said, but I still don't know you. Ah, but you have known me, she laughed, a quiet but tantalizing sound. You have known me deeply. I don't think so, I said. Please leave. Suit yourself, Beth said, but you are not going to give out a green apple this year. I'm going to make sure of that. She turned and stepped away from my tiny porch. "'Come back to my house,' she said. "'I think you'll be glad you did.' I shut the door on her words in her face and her apple. Then I sank down in my kitchen chair and tried to figure out just what she meant. It was almost Halloween, and every year I did give out an apple. To most of the kids, it was your standard candy bars and nickel prizes fair that I tossed into their bags when they came to my door dressed as lions and tigers and zombies, oh my. But there was always one. A beautiful, perhaps haughty little girl with some makeup on her face to augment the princess costume or the fairy dress. There was always one, but when I saw her, I knew. And I gave her a green apple. I don't know how it started, I don't know why, but I've been doing it for as long as I can remember. And now a witch was going to take issue with it? I shook my head. My private Halloween award was none of her business. But like any female, she somehow supposed she could make it so. I stood up and decided that this would stop right here and tonight. A woman would not meddle in my life again. Women were only good for one thing, I'd found. The hurting. I slipped on my shoes and walked to the edge of the forest, where there was a path through the brush that led to a witch's home. It was time to peel this particular apple. The old house looked darker tonight than it had before. More abandoned, more desperate. Perhaps it only reflected the emotion of my own soul. I stepped under the grey wood of the porch and it creaked loudly in the silent night. I stepped forward and the steps echoed in the night, a ghoul creeping towards the door. When I opened the screen to pound on the heavy wood of the door within, it fell back at my touch open. I didn't think, I just moved with it. I stepped inside. The wood creaked shut behind me, but I didn't move. She was there on the floor, just inches from my toes. Naked. Bloody. I stared at her corpse and willed myself to breathe. Her chest had been stabbed repeatedly. Seven deep red rents opened the skin beneath her shoulders and into the swell of her breasts. I couldn't help but look at them. Her nipples floated there atop blood-spattered breasts, as if they were only waiting for me to suckle, and I almost bent to do so before something in the back of my head reminded me. She's dead. I don't know what I was thinking, but I know that after staring at her for a minute or two, I finally stepped past her and moved farther into the house, stepping slowly down a dark corridor, worried that I would trip and fall headlong through the rotting boards of the floor. The house stank of dead things and mould, rotting wood and sour animal droppings. This was a crypt and an outhouse, not a home. How could I have even imagined that Beth lived here? Witch or no, she'd been putting me on for reasons that she'd apparently taken to the grave. In coming here to wait for me, she'd run afoul of someone more evil than this house. I should have guessed that a dead body wouldn't faze you, a soft voice whispered from behind. I whirled to find Beth standing just inches away, the blood glistening wetly on her skin like the polish on her nails. "'But you're...,' I began, and she pressed a finger to my lips. "'I could feel the dent of her nail on my lips for minutes after she took her finger away. "'I know what will faze you, though,' she said, and with that she stepped closer, slipping a long, silky arm around my waist, the daggers of her nails trailing up my spine to my neck. "'Her hand held the back of my head, and she pulled my face in close to her own. "'I could taste her breath, sweet and tart, the cider of apples ripened and soft.' She pressed her lips to mine, and I gasped. She was so soft. I wanted to lose myself in her mouth, and for a moment I gave in to her and pulled her body close. I could feel the heat of her blood soaking through my shirt as her breasts molded against my chest, and the delta of her thighs rubbed up against the bone of my hip. Another bone between us began to grow as I realized that no matter what the cost, I wanted this woman. This seeming witch, whoever, whatever she was, I wanted her red nails to dig into the flesh of my back as I pounded against her and in her until... A spike of ice shot through my heart and my eyes opened to see the glimmering green of hers. She was smiling even with my tongue in her mouth, and suddenly the taste of her was vinegar and rot, sour and rancid. You could never trust a woman. I shoved her away and she laughed, stepped back easily to watch me. With one hand she rubbed the stab wounds in her chest and drew the new blood down to smear across her belly and nipples. She painted her flesh in her own blood and then reached a bloody hand down to cup the thin pink lips of her sex. She held my eye and made sure that I was watching as she slipped first one bloody finger and then two inside herself, using her own blood as lubricant. As she performed a dirty sex show for me, her tongue slipped out of her mouth to rest against her teeth and her eyes rolled back to show their whites as a stream of black began to leak out from between her fingers. The rod of years slipping out from her uterus the room filled with a stench of decay, as if someone had just upended a wheelbarrow full of weak old roadkill on the floor. I backed away from her as she climaxed, spilling the liquefied core of her womb to the floor with each groan. Things on the floor ground and crunched beneath my feet, but with my back against the hallway wall, I edged away until she was out of sight and found myself in the kitchen. The light of the moon streamed in just enough to paint the forgotten space a ghostly blue-white, and I looked for something to use against her if she came near me again. I felt around carefully for a drawer. When it opened, I found a coil of thin wire instead of a drawer full of knives and utensils, and next to it, a short serrated knife with a wooden handle. I pulled both from the drawer and was about to turn when two hands slipped around my waist. I jerked around, knife at the ready, but it passed through thin air. Twin green eyes stared up at me from chest level. Is this better? A child's voice asked, whispery and suggestive. You could never handle a real woman, could you? You are always too stuck on me. I stared at the heavy red pout of her lips, too old for her age, and the kinked raven hair that trailed across her shoulders in feathery wisps. Just like Beth, she was naked, with seven stab wounds across her chest. You're not her. You can't be, I began. She laughed, and lifted one black, smeared finger and drew it across my cheek. I flinched, but not before her dead blood had marked me. She changed, and then her face was older, and her nose an inch from mine as she pressed her body against me, pinning me to the counter. I am her, she said, and I am me, and I am the witch who lived here before us all, and I am here for all of the girls you've given green apples to over the years. You could never grow up inside, and you stopped them from having the chance. She stepped back a pace, and her face looked momentarily sad. They never did anything to you, she whispered. A tear slipped down her face, and as it fell, I saw it change from clear to red to black. I was sorry once, she said, but I'm not anymore. Who are you? I asked, gripping the knife tighter, getting ready to add to her wounds, if that was what it took to escape this madhouse. I am Alyssa Beth Romano, she said, and you killed me when I was only seventeen. I never got to grow up and have children. I would look like this now if I was still alive but you didn't let me. I don't know what you're talking about, I said. Alyssa humiliated me so bad I didn't talk to anyone for months in eighth grade. But we went to different high schools. I never saw her again. Not true. You knew where I lived, and you followed me all through high school, looking for a way to get your revenge. And one night, as you were spying on me and my friends, you heard them dare me to go into the witch house after dark on Halloween. And you went there yourself and waited for me. You forced me to take my clothes off in the dark, and when I fought back you stabbed me, and when I screamed you stabbed me again and again until I was quiet. Then when you heard my friends coming, you pulled me down into the cellar and hid me there until they left. I was the first body you buried here, but not the last, not nearly the last. You're crazy, I said. My voice choked as somehow visions of everything she said streamed past my eyes like some crazy film reel shot by a drunk. Am I? She smiled, but there was no humour in it. With one hand, she reached out and grabbed my wrist. With her nails, she gouged into the flesh of my wrist until I couldn't resist anymore. Drop it, she said, and the knife fell to the floor. Come with me. The pale moon of her ass shifted in front of me as she held my hand but walked ahead into the dark. She led me to a closet in a back bedroom. You brought me here the night you killed me. And when you hid me in the closet, you found this. She pulled up a trapdoor in the floor and then forced me to walk down a creaking wooden ladder ahead of her. The basement smelt rank with rot and mould and Beth pushed me forward until we reached a wall. Then she guided my hand to a shovel leaning against the cinder block wall. She pointed at the dirt floor all around us and from the faint luminescence that seemed to glow from her bloodied flesh I could tell the ground was uneven. They are all here, she said. Every girl you ever gave a green apple to. No, I said. I gave those apples to the girl with the best costume each year. I never... You gave the apple to a girl who was alone and looked, in your twisted mind, somehow like me, Beth corrected. You told them how much you liked their costumes and told them you'd pick the apple fresh from the tree just that day and encouraged them to taste it. And once they did, the drug you injected worked fast. Oftentimes, they never even left your porch before they went to sleep. "'and then you brought them here to strip them naked "'and do the things to them that you always wanted to do to me. "'The thing you could never do with any girl who grew into a woman.' "'I protested, but the world seemed to spin around me "'as I saw the faintest memory of a dark-haired girl "'with the red lips and red nails of a street hooker standing on my porch. "'She was wearing a nurse outfit and chewing gum when she said, "'Trick or treat.' "'I saw the girl dressed as Princess Leia, "'dark hair pulled into ram's horn buns up on the side of her head.' and I wondered what she would feel like when I... I saw the girl wearing a brown paper bag. She called herself the bag lady. I saw the girl wearing so much saran wrap that you couldn't really tell there was nothing but skin beneath it. And then I remembered how that plastic wrap had looked when it had been pulled tight across her face, smearing her wet features into a garish mask of silent screams as I laid myself on top of her and pretended that we were married. You can dig them up now, Beth said, if you don't believe me. "'What do you want from me?' I said. I kept looking at the ladder, trying to gauge how many steps of a head start I'd need to vault up in without her having the chance to pull me back down. "'It's not what I want,' she said. "'It's what they want.' She pointed at the floor of the cellar, and I saw the dirt shifting in a dozen different spots around the room. Dirt was lifting and rolling, and dust rose on its own into the shadowed air, and then a skeletal hand appeared from beneath the earth, just past my feet. I gasped and stepped back, But there were now several hands protruding from the floor, and then they were scooping at the earth, white bones on black earth, shoving aside their graves until all around me the cellar filled with the forms of dusty skeletal girls. Before my eyes their bones filled with blue-white flesh, and all as one they looked at me with unblinking serious eyes, eyes that didn't bleed with anger so much as finality. "'You know they call this the House of the Lost,' Beth said, still the only ghoul who spoke.' "'though from the faces of the girls who were stepping towards me "'there was no need for any other words. "'You picked a strange place to bury your dead,' she said. "'A witch did live here once back when we were kids, "'and the ground still bears the power of her curses.' "'A hand reached inside my shirt, "'and another slipped beneath my jeans and my belly. "'Their fingers were cold and hard. "'My belt began to loosen, and I pushed them away, "'but only for a moment.' Four icy hands gripped each of my arms and pinned me to the wall. I tried to struggle and kick, and for a moment I actually pulled one fist off the wall and connected with the face of a girl with buck teeth. She bit me and I screamed just as someone else kneed me in the groin. It didn't take long before I was stripped naked and the ghostly flesh of all of my girls pressed me to the wall. Beth laughed and reached out to finger the thing that had betrayed me all my life. It never did grow up, did it? And then she was the Alyssa I remembered again, the sparkle of her green eyes still full of both humor and the cruelty that only children can display, before the pain of life had taught them the real weight of the hurting. She guided my hand down the wall and back to the shovel, and flanked by naked ghosts, she pointed at a spot in the earth that seemed relatively level. Dig, she said, and make it deep and wide. You're going to have a lot of company. I dug. The cellar earth moved easily but my hands were quickly raw. The sweat poured off my head, but I didn't feel hot. Every time I looked up from the earth, I saw the empty eyes of all the girls I'd buried here on Halloween nights past, all the girls I'd loved, in my own way. Under their silent eyes, I stepped the shovel down again and again and dug the grave deep. I didn't protest when Alyssa put her hand on my head and told me to lay down in it. I knew there was no point. They were not going to let me leave, and honestly, I'm not sure I wanted to. After a time, maybe that hollow place inside you just grows so much that the shell left around it simply doesn't care to move anymore. "'Do you know what day it is?' Alyssa asked, as I crouched down in the damp earth. I shook my head, momentarily confused. "'It's Halloween,' Alyssa said. "'Your day of green apples.' I lay down and waited for the girls to join me. I figured when Alyssa had promised company that they planned to torment me, even beneath the earth, for my crimes." But then something hard hit me in the head, and something else bounced off my chest. I reached out and found the smooth skin of an apple. I held it up and saw the glowing eyes of the girls peering back down at me from the edge of my grave. "'Take a bite,' one of the girls said, and then another said the same, and another. "'Take a bite,' they whispered in unison, over and over again, as more and more of the apples rained down on me, painfully bouncing off my knees and hips and ribs and face, I held the apple to my mouth as the grave began to fill with the fruit. It was cool and hard against my skin, and soon I could feel nothing but the weight of the green apples against my chest. I bit into the apple in my hand, and the taste was sour and sweet, both at the same time, just like a woman. I looked up and saw the girls above me growing into women, their pert breasts and boyish waists filling out and curving, and their eyes lengthening into organs both sultry and feral. The apples continued to rain down on me until I could no longer see the beautiful dead nudes above me, who were stoning me in fruit that should have still been maturing on the branch. All wasted, Beth's adult voice came from somewhere far away. All of it wasted, like apples gone wrinkled and brown, left to rot on the ground, untasted. All around me the immature fruit began to change, growing older, ripening. The smell of vinegar filled my nose, and then I was drowning in the scent and the drip of bitter age covering and crushing me until I cried out again and again that I was sorry. But there was nobody left to hear or care. They were all dead.
3: Uh Aha. You can touch base with John Everson at his dark art site. It's at john Everson. or just click on the link below. And thanks to you, Simon Hildebrandt, for that great narration. Simon's a regular on the Starship sofa, and from what I can see, he'll be a regular here in the Nook, too. Stop by at his site by clicking below. Well, that'll do it for this week. I'm glad you could stop by again. Look forward to seeing you next time. Just toss the sheepskin on the bed. Yeah, yeah that picture up there, it's, that is strange. Yeah? You look at it, and it seems simple, but there's something definitely creepy about that painting. It, it looks back at you. Hmm? It was painted by William White a long time ago. It's my father-in-law. That's him. That's him. Bill White, down there at the bottom. Uh, If we ever do a story set in a carnival, maybe I'll put that image up as the illustration. Mm. Maybe I'll write one. Mr. White won't mind. He's no longer with us. You know, maybe that's what Trish meant, that he... No, no. That painting wasn't here when she was, but, but you know... Maybe, maybe the space knew. Maybe the nook knew one day that little ghostly image of Bill White that you see down there in the court. Nah. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to bed now. You? you have a nice, quiet walk home. And pleasant dreams? Yes? Yes?